Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the Fixed Income Conversation Corner on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Today's conversation will be a wide-ranging one and will deliver you insights into positioning within the asset class against what has been a very challenging macro backdrop and in consideration of what the balance of the year might have in store for the broader markets. Joining us for the conversation today, glad to welcome back Head of Taxable Fixed Income Strategy Americas from the UBS Chief Investment office, Leslie Falconio. i glad to also welcome back to the forum, Ken Chinoda, Portfolio Manager with Double On Capital. So Leslie, Ken, welcome to you both and thank you for spending some time with our listeners and our clients. Uh, Leslie, I'll pass it over to you to lead the conversation today with Ken. Welcome. Thank you, Dan. And, and Ken, thank you so much for, for joining. I mean, this is during these times and particularly this past, you know, almost, you know, in the five months, it's been such a volatile time. So I really appreciate you, you know, hopping on and, and giving some of your thoughts on on a topic that you know is very pertinent in a sector, an asset class that's very pertinent. So I thank you for this, and and I do just want to get started, you know, with the with a thorn in the you know market side, and that is you know inflation, and you know with inflation running at you know these historic highs of about eight and a half percent, you know, what is Sublines' view on inflation for the rest of the year? Sure, I mean we think that inflation has peaked. Um, I mean, it's come down on a month-over-month basis from its highs, but it's probably going to remain uh, higher than where the Fed would probably like um, because, unfortunately, because of the conflict in Russia, Ukraine, and the Chinese lockdowns, that put more pressure on things like energy and things like the supply chains. About Earlier this year, it was our expectation that if you look at the different components of CPI, core CPI, that um, we had this big spike in goods inflation. And it made sense. People were, you know, not out eating at restaurants and traveling. And so they, they, they were all hunkered down at home and uh, buying stuff, right? And um, we had that supply chain issue. So you saw this big spike in, in core goods. And if you look at spending, the spending on core goods is, is definitely coming down. I mean, how many dishwashers and microwaves and flat screen TVs do you need? You buy one and that's it, right? Um, and so we expected a handoff where core goods inflation would come down and then you'd start seeing a rise in things like shelter and and uh, services as you, as you got this economic handoff to the kind of the reopening and then the higher home prices coming through. Unfortunately, the services inflation is going up. Um, the shelter inflation is going up. And the core goods inflation hasn't come down. And that's why you, you saw that such a high print. I mean, we didn't expect 8-plus percent headline CPI, uh, even though we were one of, the, one of the first people to say this transitory concept was just kind of <laughs> baloney last year. Um, but we do think it's, it's going to start coming down. Um, the, the fears of recession are really around the fact that if inflation doesn't come down fast, the computer, the consumer is going to get squeezed. So I think if inflation comes down fast, that will help have a soft or less bumpy landing economically. But if inflation stays stubbornly high, that's definitely going to put a squeeze on the consumer, as you saw in what's going on with like Walmart and Target right now, right? Right. So let's let's kind of like shift over to that when we think about uh, the impact and sort of the the Fed's 
uh, ability here to, you know, either tame future inflation without completely hitting consumer demand. And as we think about, you know, how what the market did, and as we all know, this large repressing in the beginning of the year, which had this huge move in interest rates, you know, of, you know, had the now we have the end of year Fed funds rate with the market is pressing in at around a 270-ish. And maybe one year's time from now at about a three percent. Now, what's your what is your view in terms of not just the the quantity but the path? Meaning that you know June and July might be a very high probability of fifty basis point rate hikes, but do you see that as a consecutive throughout the year? And so, what's your sort of velocity and terminal in terms of Fed funds rate? Yeah, I mean it, it's, it all depends, right? It all depends on how the data comes in. Uh, never, uh, it's it's been so long that the inflation prints and the economic data is so important um, for, for investors. I mean, we, we're sitting every every month waiting for that, you know, CPI numbers to come in so we can kind of see what's going on with inflation. So I, I think another 250s is in the bag right now. I mean, they're, they're, they're going to go 50-50, I think, no question. And then it gives them time to wait and watch and see what happens with the data. And if the inflation stays stubbornly high, they'll continue along this aggressive path, I think. So um, it's hard to tell where that terminal Fed funds will be until we get a little bit more data come through. So when we think about, you know, we know we know we have Mark expressing in all these these Fed rate hikes, and obviously we have these behind the scenes starting in June, this quantitative tightening. And although the market is expecting obviously the quantitative tightening to to happen in June, they know it will. How do you think you know going forward, the the remo- removal of the balance sheet, the balance sheet rundown, will actually impact the marketplace in terms of you know is it already priced in or do you feel that it could actually have more of a tightening um, uh, result, more, much more than what the market is expecting in terms of the equivalent of how many Fed fund rate hikes it would be? So how do you sort of look at that in terms of how it, it affects you know spreads and interest rates as a whole? The Treasury component of that is not necessarily as concerning. They have so many different maturities of Treasuries that are coming off, coming due, and if they don't have enough for any particular month, they have a ton of T-bills that they could sell as well, right? Um, so really, it's the the agency portion that we were looking at, and if they hit the ninety five billion dollar cap, that's about thirty five billion of that is mortgages. At the natural rate at which borrowers prepay and pay down principal, about ten billion of that just naturally will roll off. So that would leave fifteen billion to sell, and I think some of that's priced in. Not all of it, but some of that's priced in. And I think that, you know, kind of where equity prices and risk assets, one of the reasons they're down is because rates are higher and this liquidity has been taken away from the marketplace. So, I mean, in many ways, I think a lot of this stuff is already priced in. Um, The mortgage-backed securities, it's a very bifurcated market. um, But the higher coupon mortgage-backed securities, like ones that are four and four and a half, the nominal spread on them has widened it's almost doubled. It's now about 125 over treasuries. That's almost the same as corporate bonds with with no credit risk. And so they, they actually look very attractive. It's the widest spreads on that segment of the mortgage-backed securities market in 10 years. We haven't seen spreads like this in 10 years. There's another part of the market. These are lower coupon mortgages that were created you know, over the last couple of years. That's what the Fed owns. 
the Fed owns, you know, two percent coupon mortgage bonds and two and a half percent coupon mortgage bonds, and that 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 part of the market is actually really expensive. Um, there's a technical thing going on where it's part of the index, so people have to buy them, but they can't find them because the Fed owns them all. And so that part of the market, I think, could could have some downside. But the higher these, these higher coupon mortgages, I mean, they're, it's pretty compelling. And I think investors should be taking a hard look, especially if you're on the recession camp. The mortgage-backed securities should outperform corporate bonds if we go into a into a recession. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree with that, and and, and and similar with the agency MBS as a whole. But I wanted to, as and I want to, we're going to get into more into the detailed, you know, coupon discussion in a bit. But I did want to ask you because we do have, you know, as we know, outside of the curve and you know the shape of the curve and what's priced into you know the two year, you know, right now versus the future Fed funds, and what do you look at in terms of? The curve in and of itself, and the inversion, meaning that we know people look at two tens, we look at you know three month tenure. We happen to believe the curve is more of a coincident indicator than you know a cause. But I'm just curious, like what's your view on the short end? How do you view the shape of the curve going forward? And to what you just said in regards to coupon and coupon your coupon selection, it, does that alter your view at all? Yeah, I mean a lot of the move, I think, is priced in. I mean the two year could get to three percent potentially. But it's not that far away, and with a, such a short duration, uh, you don't have that much downside. Uh, and that's the, probably, from a credit standpoint, short credit looks attractive to us because after this big repricing, you can go. I mean, just outright, you know, the two-year at 270 yield or wherever, wherever it is today, you know, rates could go up 100 basis points. You lose two percent, you end up positive 70 basis point total return. So you have a lot more safety broadly in the bond market because yields are now much higher relative to duration risk. And if you buy a little bit of credit risk on top of the that you know 2.7 or if the swap curve is like 3%, I mean you can, you, we're buying short credit that yields like four and a half investment grade AAA. It's, it's rates could go up 200 basis points, we could still have a potentially a positive total return. So that the front end of the curve, I think, looks pretty interesting right now could go higher but with uh that yield to duration ratio being much higher i think you have a, you have safety there and then from a recession risk standpoint the long end is where you need to be i know it's scary because it could you go we can you could lose money there but look look at you know days like you know this this week rate rates rates rallied finally when risk assets were selling off. And now that we've repriced to these higher nominal yields of you know 3% on the long end, you actually have some upside. I mean, rates can actually fall 150 basis points. Uh, that wasn't the case back in 2020, right? So I think um, fixed income now provides a, a much better value proposition than it has in a very, very long time. So let's think about that now. You know, finally, and I, I completely agree. I think you made some really great points, and we finally have a much wider opportunity set within the fixed income universe. You know, to earn, you know, decent carry, and still have a, a good, you know, preservation of capital. So if we, if when we look at those that opportunity set in terms of things like things that have listen, certain certain sectors have had a really recent, you know, pockets of vulnerability, which one wouldn't expect given the volatility in the market. So we have seen some a bit of widening spreads. But what do you think in terms of in the credit side, either like the CLOs or CMBS securitized, 
Moon's Avia. So in terms of the, the, the product mix, how are you positioned? What do you, what do you think offers the best value? That's a tough question. Everything, everything is kind of widened. So, I mean, we were so negative on corporate bonds because of their long interest rate risk and long spread risk. But, you know, corporate bonds yield low fours now. And uh, they hadn't, they yielded over four, obviously, for like two weeks in March of 2020 when we had all that volatility. Then you have to go back to 2018. And they yielded four for like three months before the famous Powell pivot. And they kept the cut rates. And prior to that, you have to go, you have to go back all the way to 2011 to get a 4% yield in investment-grade corporate bonds. So I think, you know, there, there many pockets in the market have um, repriced. If you're still concerned about duration, then the securitized market, which would be things like non-agency, MBS, some parts of the CMBS market, ABS, CLOs, you can, you can create a diversified credit portfolio that's on the shorter end Today, it yields around five, pretty high quality with a duration of around two and a half. And that's, that's kind of the, the credit component of our total return bond fund, just using that as a, as a benchmark. So, I, you know, I kind of pick and choose your battles, um, but there's not, I don't think there's one sector that just stands out screaming cheap. Uh, everything is kind of wide in, in sympathy together. Okay, so I want to actually ask the sort of like the reverse question. Um, which, where do you think the risk lies? How about that? Like, like within those sectors, you know, given the things that wind out, where do you, where do you potentially see, you know, what I would call a yellow flag right now, not red, a yellow. Yeah. I mean, one place that I think does really well when, before rates rise, but after, if, if the Fed actually takes rates higher, people should kind of like make sure they are with a good manager is the bank loan market. Um, bank loans do really well uh, when the market thinks rates are going to rise and actually when the rates are rising on the, on the kind of longer end because they're floating rate. Like bank loans were one, of the were one of the top performing parts of the market uh, up until this last month. They were barely down on the year, and now the bank, bank loan in index is down about two and a half. So um, I think the bank loan, ha bank loan market has a little bit of catching up to do to high yield. High yield index is down over 10 um, you know, there's great bank loans to be bought and I don't broadly hate the sector, but if SOFR or Fed funds gets to 3%, you know, the coupons on the debt of these companies is going to not almost double, right? So that's going to put some pressure on, on margins on those companies. So I think that's one place that, you know, it, it's great when rates are rising, but if rates, short-term rates actually go higher, the risk increases in that marketplace. So when you know, and you're so you mentioned the total return fund. I know you're also the, uh, the PM on the income and the opportunistic hedge fund, and, and we've talked about some sort of we talked about a current strategy and relative value. But when we think about how you have those funds positioning, you know, particularly on the hedge fund side, do you, do you do you think it's prudent for hypothetical people to look at say like a short in one to three year IG hedge it two and a half times? I can get the same yield as a high yield. With much less risk. I mean, are those kind of in your head opportunistic? What sort of opportunistic strategies are you sort of employing now in your funds that you know are just beyond like a relative value, rich or cheap? I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, we don't, we wouldn't do that in our hedge fund. We just we don't use that much leverage. Our leverage is like 25% right now. But th there's a case to be made 
for leveraging shorter duration, high quality credit, just given how um, how much that part of the curve is repriced. So I, I don't think that's a bad idea by any means. Um, I mean, right now we're kind of being patient in our hedge fund. We've been kind of deleveraging. We've been uh, we I raised all our opportunistic separate accounts to like 10% cash um, in January. Obviously, wish I'd done more. Uh, cash is, you know, people, people say, well, cash in this inflationary environment, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're losing money. Well, guess what? Cash is outperforming the bond market by a thousand basis points, the stock market by like 20, you know, 2000 basis points. So you're at least you're not losing money in cash, but I think we're getting close to a time where you, it's going to be an interesting moment to buy riskier credit. Um, you're never going to be able to buy enough as a, as a bond fund manager on the way up, because when the market reco- recovers, the offers get moved up by the people that own those assets, right? By the, the traders on, on, on wall street. So you have to kind of buy on the way down in order to get any meaningful exposure and high yield OAS just using high yield as kind of a benchmark for risky assets. That's, that's about 500 over now. And, you know, it got to about a thousand, in March of 2020, maybe doesn't get that wide, but as we get towards like 600, 700, even if we get there, we may not. Um, I think there's going to be a pretty interesting buying opportunity in the credit markets, um, and that's going to be dependent upon equity volatility. If equities keep trading lower, then that's going to push credit spreads wider. And so I think people should be on the lookout on um, maybe some opportunistic buying in some of these credit markets. Yeah, I, I I completely agree. I mean, to be honest, I mean, one of the things from our perspective, and we we do have very similar views. I mean, there's, when we think about the total return, like you mentioned, high yield in the start of the year, obviously the point of the curve where it is, given the fact that the five year leads away in the shift in monetary policy, most of the headwinds had to do with the rising rates, and listen, credit spreads actually stayed pretty well. You know, they widened a little bit, but compared to the equity market, they were doing very well. And I, I want to ask you, uh, when we see this recent credit spread widening, and just in general, and the volatility overall, do you think there's any sort of, you know, uh, uh, you know, barriers in terms of access to credit or, you know, we know that some of the volatility, even some of the Wall Street people pull some of their deals because of volatility. Do you think it, in terms of how you manage your fund or selection, you've had any impact or is it something where you find it very, it's temporary and you can easily, you know, manage around? Well, liquidity is definitely more challenging this last week than it has been, um, just given the, the, the broader risk off mood out there. Um and the market has really changed post global financial crisis because you had trading desks that had much more willingness and ability to balance sheet assets. And, you know, Wall Street wanted to make money trading bonds. And you had prop desks that would, you know, take positions in, in these risk off scenarios. And, and Wall Street just doesn't want to, you know, take risk trading bonds anymore. And the prop desks don't exist, right, because of, I think, Volcker rule. So liquidity is definitely more challenging, and you you got to manage portfolios accepting that. And in some of our kind of more liquid funds, that means we carry more treasuries and agency mortgages and things like that. So I think for investors, kind of be careful if you are in open-end funds that are all credit. That's where the, the highest risk to the liquidity in the marketplace lies, because if there's a run on assets. Everyone's forced to sell into this liquidity vacuum, and you don't want to be the last person left in the fund. 
Um, so in a ways, um, I think some of these structures like interval funds and things like that, that kind of prevent too much money leaving, I think are actually a way that kind of like saves investors from themselves in some ways, right? Oh, I, I actually, I, I, I completely agree. And, you know, I was like, this was, this was a really, really great informative conversation. Thank you, Dan. And thank you, Ken. I really appreciate the time. My pleasure. Good luck, everybody. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer. 